And now, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And then alongside it, as you heard read earlier in our service, Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, to chapter 18, verse 15, as well as Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. We are continuing this morning in our study of Hebrews 11 within what is an ongoing series covering the entire book of Hebrews. And last week, we began a new section of Hebrews 11 that goes from verse 8 to verse 22. And the focus in this part of the chapter is on the faith of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and in particular, of course, on the faith of Abraham. We said last week there are four aspects or episodes concerning Abraham on which the pastor focuses. We considered the first two last week in verses 8 to 10, where we saw firstly Abraham's faithful obedience to the call of God to leave his hometown in Ur. And then secondly, we considered Abraham's acceptance of faith's cost as he remained but a sojourner in the land of promise all his days. This morning we turn now to the third episode in the life of Abraham that is in focus in Hebrews chapter 11, and that's the birth of Isaac. To continue from last week, we could perhaps say that what now comes into focus in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter is faith's challenge so that there would be the call of faith, the cost of faith, and now this morning, just to keep the alliterative pattern, the challenge of faith. Because faith is challenging sometimes, isn't it? Of course it is. By definition, faith is challenging. We've said this a few times already, but I'll repeat it here again. Faith is living as if God's promise for the future is sure and his power in the present is real. That's not always easy to do. And perhaps the primary reason it's not is because faith requires of us to wholeheartedly trust in a God who transcends our human limitations. The promises God makes frankly seem impossible sometimes because in fact they are impossible from every conceivable human angle or perspective so that it is only as we come to a right understanding of the power of God that we find we can meet the challenge of faith to live as if God's promises are sure. Faith is living as if God's promise for the future is sure and his power in the present is real. So as we'll see this morning, faith meets its challenge when we come to believe this central biblical truth, that nothing is too hard for the Lord, brothers and sisters. That's where we're heading this morning because that's what was at the center of Sarah's faith. Now, you will have noticed that it's not just Abraham who's in focus this morning, is it? 
Verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 11 keep us squarely within the flow of the Abrahamic narrative, but it's Abraham's wife, Sarah, whose faith now comes into view in these verses. And there's good reason for that, because as we'll see, it is Abraham and Sarah together who are in view here, just as they are within the Genesis narrative. The faith Sarah displays is also required of Abraham and vice versa. Both of them must meet the challenge of faith. And both of them will meet it, but not at first. Open your Bibles once again, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11, and listen now as we read just verses 11 and 12 once more. The pastor writes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, my goal, as always, this morning, is to better understand those verses in Hebrews. And this time, what I think that requires is that we spend quite a lot of time in Genesis. Because I think what the pastor says here in verses 11 and 12 is the most fitting conclusion to this large section of the Abrahamic narrative, and it has much to teach us about faith's challenge. So let's begin now by going back into Genesis and reviewing the context. Last week, we read from Genesis chapters 11 and 12, the account of the call of Abram and Abram's initial journey to the land of Canaan, and there we find two things that become especially important for our study this morning. First, in Genesis 11, verse 30, we learn that Abram's wife Sarai was barren, the text says. She had no child. That fact then immediately creates some suspense given the second thing we learn, which is that among the initial promises made to Abram by the Lord, while he was still in Ur, in fact, was this promise in Genesis 12, verse 2. The Lord said, I will make of you a great nation. Abraham faithfully responded to God's call. In leaving Ur, he embraced by faith even the cost of spending his whole life as a sojourner in the land. We talked about that. He embraced that partly because Abram was trusting the promise the Lord made in Genesis 12, verse 7, when the Lord said, To your offspring, I will give this land. These are among God's promises in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation. To your offspring, I will give this land. Only moving now beyond Genesis 12, some time passes, and Abram isn't quite sure what the Lord has in mind. Because as we learn then at the beginning of Genesis chapter 15, nothing has happened yet to make those promises any more of a reality. If you're there in Genesis, you can turn over to chapter 15. We'll just read a little of it. 
It begins, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or in other words, everything I've promised you will take place. But it's been a while now, and Abram evidently feels he needs some answers. And so the text continues, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. But is that the answer? Is that what the Lord intended? Well, no, it wasn't. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And in a moment frequently celebrated in the New Testament, verse 6 of Genesis 15 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. On that awesome night, staring up into the heavens, Abram believed. Only then it's not long before you realize the real question in Genesis becomes, Will Abram keep believing the Lord? Because things still don't seem to be happening. Look over now to Genesis chapter 16. More time passes. And then we read in chapter 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And many of you know what comes next. Sarai and Abram figure they'll just have to make something happen. Verse 1 continues, Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And the end of verse 2 says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And note how the Genesis narrative at this point begins to look at the faith, or lack of it, found in Abram and Sarai together. Do you see that? Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, it says. They are neither one of them trusting the Lord in this moment. They're working things out their way together. Only, of course, the whole thing's a mess, and Sarai becomes deeply jealous of Hagar after Hagar conceives, and it says Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. And so Hagar flees, and the angel of the Lord comforts her and says she shall bear a son to be named Ishmael, but it's clearly not the way it was supposed to happen. The angel says Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. 
his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, which doesn't sound at all like the way the promises of God are to carry on. And so the last verse of chapter 16 just sort of leaves things hanging. It says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 86 years old. And then what does the next verse, chapter 17, verse 1 say? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now I think it's something to note that the Lord let Abram go for 13 years after his faithless action with Sarai involving Hagar. Think of it. 13 years for Abram to think about what he'd done. And then when the Lord speaks to him again, what is it that Abram needs to know? That I am God Almighty, the Lord says to him. El Shaddai. It is the first time that that name for God appears in the scriptures. It means he's the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. He is God Almighty. Or, in other words, there isn't anything too hard for him. This is now some 23 years since the initial promise was made to Abram, 13 bleak years after Ishmael was born. And it's only now that the time had come. I am God Almighty. Walk before me, Abram, and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Note that. Who's the one who's got to do the multiplying here? It's God. Not in the first place, Abram or Sarai, but God. And the point is, God saying to Abram, I am able. I am able to fulfill the awesome hopes I set before you. There is no need to let go of the promise, to succumb to passive desperation, to resort to fleshly expedience, to try to fulfill this in some second-rate way, I am God Almighty. Everything lies in that fact for Abram and for us. And to drive the point home, what does the Lord say next in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4? Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Your very name will embody my promise. You will be called father of a multitude. It's what the name Abraham means. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In verses 9 to 14 of this chapter, Genesis 17, God then tells Abraham that keeping this covenant with him will entail circumcising every male among them. Only that 
hasn't happened yet when we come now finally to the text that was read this morning, beginning in chapter 17, verse 15. Because the Lord isn't done yet. Having reiterated the promises and given commands regarding circumcision, the Lord now speaks to Abraham about Sarai, his wife. Not only does Abraham get his new name, but Sarai gets hers, signaling, I think, that her role in all of this will be just as significant as his. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Once again, we see the intertwining of Abraham and Sarah here. The promises are in parallel. King shall come from you, the Lord said to Abraham in verse 6, and king shall come from her, he says in verse 16. And so now confronted by the challenge of faith, the seemingly impossible promises of God, Abraham and Sarah both will be required to respond. First up is Abraham. And brothers and sisters, look at verse 17. It says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? That is Father Abraham's response. He laughs. And I know there are lots of commentators who argue at this point that Abraham's laughter here isn't really negative, that it's just him being overwhelmed by the incredibleness of the promise or some such thing, and I don't buy it. <laughs> and the reason I don't buy it is because of verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael. After all that, this is the way Abraham responds to everything God just said? Think about it. This is the God who calls himself El Shaddai, and after 13 years, he's reestablishing his covenant, and he's focusing it now explicitly on the key promise of a son to be born to Sarah. And what is Abraham's first response? It is essentially to say, well, that's not going to happen, because that can't happen. So... How about you just go along with Ishmael being the heir? Okay, God? Abraham laughs. And it's tempting. I feel your own temptation here to be hard on Abraham. I already have been a little hard on Abraham. But upon reflection, I think I'd probably have done the same thing. Because what God's promising here just isn't possible, right? And it isn't, humanly speaking. 
Only that is the whole point. That is faith's challenge. We're not talking humanly here. I am God Almighty, the Lord says. I'm not sure then what's more comforting to know that this was Abraham's initial response or to see how gentle and restorative the Lord now is with him. Met now with yet another moment of weak faith on Abraham's part, how does God respond? Verse 19, God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And friends, you know, many of you, what the name Isaac means. It means he laughs. In other words, God will bring about his promise and one day Abraham himself will laugh again, only then with joy. For the Lord continues, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. But, verse 21 concludes, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then, here's my read of Genesis at this point, dear friends. And you'll have to judge whether or not you think this is right. But I think it's that point, that that's the point at which Abraham came to fully trust that exactly what God had said would happen. And I say that because of what Abraham does in response. Finally, after receiving this gentle rebuke from the Lord. Do you see what he does there in verse 23 after the text says God had finished talking with him? The point has gotten through. It says, Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. He did it. He kept covenant. And then comes the narrative reiteration of Abraham's age in verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. What's the point? As I read it, it's that finally... On the question of having a son by Sarah, something Abraham knew was humanly impossible, he had believed the Lord. And yes, the text of Genesis makes clear that Abraham's faith had begun many years ago, as we saw last week. But that God's promises would come about in precisely this way? Well, you see, on that point, Abraham's faith had to get there, I think. Faith's challenge in our lives is not always met initially by our most faithful response, is it? It may not even be met by our most faithful response the second or third or fourth time. But what's the goal? 
What's God's goal in our lives? It's that we come to trust him more and more as time goes on, that we become more and more convinced of God's ability to do precisely what he has promised. I think this is the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4 when he refers to this very moment in Abraham's life. In Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 21, Paul says, In hope Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. He did not weaken in faith. Note that. He did not weaken in faith. Not this time, is Paul's point, I think. When Abraham considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or as, as Genesis makes doubly explicit, 99 years old, to be precise. Or, Paul continues, when Abraham considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then Paul says this, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is what it takes to meet faith's challenge, to be fully convinced. And I think it's significant that Paul uses the language of fully. It only comes at great length that Abraham is now fully convinced that God is able to do what he promises. Paul celebrates that moment in Abraham's life, but brothers and sisters, it took time for Abraham to get there, you see. He did eventually, by the grace of God. Abraham's faith grew strong. But what about Sarah? Because in the context of the Genesis narrative, it cannot be enough for only Abraham to get there. Not after what we've seen of Abraham's and Sarah's connectedness in the Hagar incident, or in the way the Lord makes such magnificent promises concerning both of them, as he gives them both new names. And You heard the account read earlier, so we won't repeat it all now as time begins to run away from us. But what happens then in Genesis chapter 18? Well, the Lord shows up. And why? Why does the Lord do that? Well, I know that there's lots written about Genesis 18 and what it's all about. But as I've thought about the narrative this week, I think the point of Genesis 18 verses 1 to 15 is that the Lord now shows up for Sarah I think he comes for the sake of Sarah's faith. Because in this short narrative in Genesis 18, Sarah is the one who's in focus, isn't she? In verses 1 to 8, Abraham responds to the three unexpected visitors and sets things in motion in order to extend proper hospitality. But then what is the first thing Genesis records that they say to him once all is arranged? that these three visitors say to Abraham, it's verse 9, they say to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And Abraham said, She is in the tent. 
In other words, she's, she's right here, probably just on the other side of a curtain or, or partition in the tent as they're eating, working on the food, no doubt. She can hear us, which is the point, you see, because that's when the Lord says in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And I say that's the point, that Sarah can hear all of this, because Abraham wasn't the one who needed to hear it now, you see. Not as I'm reading it, because this is exactly what Abraham had already heard the Lord promise in the end of chapter 17 that he'd responded faithfully to. This isn't for Abraham. The Lord says this for Sarah now. And so the text continues, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. In the end of verse 10, of course she was. And then we get this narrative insertion in verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Or in other words, what this visitor just said to Abraham for Sarah to overhear was an absolute human impossibility. So now, what will Sarah's response be? And here you see, after watching how Abraham handled it in chapter 17, we're not so surprised, are we? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. And notice here that it was to herself that she laughed. It wasn't out loud, in other words. Saying, also to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's the same as Abraham. You see? Sarah laughed. Only just like Abraham, I think Sarah was a person of faith. How could she not have been? She came out of Ur with Abram in response to the Lord's call. She bore the same cost as he did. She had heard through her husband the same promises he had heard. She'd been part of all of this. I think we are to assume Sarah has faith. And yet, she laughed. And it's the same pattern. As in chapter 17 with Abraham, how does the Lord respond? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, but really he was speaking to Sarah, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then here comes the key to the whole thing. The divine visitor tells us precisely what the point of the whole narrative arc has been, what it is that is required of both Abraham and Sarah to meet the challenge of faith. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Says the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And now here again, you may wish to take issue with how I read this, but I think that was the moment for Sarah. I think 
that just as Abraham at the end of chapter 17 responds in faith, so also does Sarah begin to do at the end of chapter 18. I think this is when she grew strong in her faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And you say, but wait a minute, preacher, look at verse 15. And I say, I know, I see it. It says, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. And I'm well aware that there's an interpretive tradition that reads that as Sarah remaining stubbornly unfaithful. But I don't think that's right. I think this is the precise moment to which the pastor writing Hebrews 11 is referring, or at least that it's the beginning of it. I am in agreement with what one commentator has to say on this point. When he writes, quote, Sarah's incredulous laughter is, humanly speaking, readily understandable in view both of her barrenness and of her advanced age, but it does not ipso facto stamp her as one who was devoid of faith. Immediately after laughing, she heard the Lord say to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. And then here's the key. It is more reasonable to conclude that this admonition, together with the repetition of the promise, dispelled any unbelief that had arisen in her heart, I think exactly as it had for Abraham at the end of chapter 17. And the fact that she then denied her laughter, awed by what she had heard, may well indicate, as Chrysostom suggests, an attempt to correct her former attitude of incredulity. I think that's exactly right. Notice how the narrator explicitly says that Sarah said this because she was afraid. In other words, that she knew that her faithless response only moments ago had been understood by the very one who declares himself to be God Almighty. And it is speculation, I realize it. But I cannot help but imagine at that very moment, the Lord looking to Sarah with a gentle smile and ending their conversation with the words, No, <laughs> but you did laugh. As I read it, dear friends, Sarah in that very moment came to believe that nothing was, in fact, too hard, too wonderful, too surpassing, too incredible for the Lord. As the pastor puts it, she considered him faithful who had promised. And with both Abraham and Sarah now having met faith's challenge, though only by the patient grace of the Lord himself, we can turn briefly to Genesis chapter 21. And what does it say? Genesis 21 verse 1, 
the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. It was all according to the promise. Isaac had been born. Abraham had him circumcised and then listened to Sarah's joyful utterance in chapter 21, verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Because nothing is too hard for the Lord, brothers and sisters. No longer would Abraham and Sarah laugh in unbelief. Theirs would be tears of joy in renewed wonder at the power and faithfulness of the promise-keeping God. They had met faith's challenge, not at first, either one of them, but eventually. And for that reason, it's significant that Abraham and Sarah together would be celebrated as an example for all God's people. Listen to Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, which makes the point. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. The Puritan commentator John Owen remarks, as Abraham was the father of the faithful, so she was the mother. So as that the distinct mention of her faith was equally necessary. Like Abraham before her, Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, the pastor says, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Brothers and sisters, the faith that pleases God and receives his promises may struggle, but it doesn't let go. Fear not, Abram, said the Lord. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It would take time for Abram and Sarai both to come to fully being convinced of the promises of God. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The question is, do we believe it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? One commentator puts it well when he 
writes, and with this we'll close, the story of Abraham and Sarah illustrates the certainty of the divine promise such that all humanly perceived boundaries of probability and possibility are broken and powerless in its face. What God has promised he will do, and what he has promised is located beyond all the boundaries of the present creation. This is the challenge of faith, dear friends, and Sarah met it. She considered him faithful who had promised. So may it be said of us. Next week, we take a break from our study of Hebrews, but we turn our attention to another woman of faith who responded very much as Sarah did and to a remarkably similar message. I hope you'll join us for the final Sunday of Advent next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.